Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined as ever by CJ McKinney. This week we're going to lead on some case law on asylum before turning to the latest changes to the EU settlement scheme um, and of course appendix EU has been replaced all over again again. Um, we'll then discuss some new Home Office guidance on deception, interesting Court of Appeal, um, sorry, European Court of Human Rights judgment um, on Article 3 claims and medical treatment, and also look at the position with historic convictions in fresh deportation proceedings. And then at the end, we're going to look at the demise of the notorious takeaway rule. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with a couple of cases on the rights of refugees' dependents, so relatives of people with refugee status who are allowed to stay in the UK alongside the refugee. And we've had two Court of Appeal cases on the sort of precise legal status of these refugee dependents, and they seem slightly disjointed, maybe. Uh, So the first one is KNDRC 2019 EWCA-1665. So that was handed down on the 9th of October, and it said that the government can revoke the refugee status of these dependents if circumstances in their country of origin have have changed. The second case was handed down a day later on the 10th of October, and that was called JS Uganda 2019 EWCA Civ 1670. And the second case said that dependents of refugees don't have their own refugee status at all that just because a refugee in the uk sponsors you as a as a relative doesn't mean you have any kind of derivative refugee status yourself so one case talking about when you can revoke a dependent's refugee status and then another case seems to say there's nothing there to revoke so i'm confused colin i don't know whether you can sort of reconcile those decisions um yeah, no, not not so much. <laughs> I'm pretty confused as well. I, I I suppose the the takeaway at the end of it is is the same in both cases, which is that you you don't have any refugee status once the Home Office is finished with you. But it's reaching that that sort of end point by very different routes, and you know it is quite significant whether you've got refugee status in the meantime or not. Um, one of the cases suggests the Home Office has been getting this hugely wrong for years by um, recognising family members as refugees and issuing them a refugee status. Um, the other one suggests that you know that, that, that status wasn't wrongly issued but can be taken away. Um, I, I don't see any way of reconciling these two decisions. I, I don't know why the Court of Appeal benches hadn't sort of communicated unusually the the sort of legal officers behind the scenes at the court are quite good at coordinating this kind of stuff but that obviously didn't happen here and I I suspect it means that the issue ends up going up to the 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 supreme court that that might not happen because obviously going to the supreme court depends on quite a lot of other things happening as well it's got to be you know relevant to the outcome of the case and and, and so on um supreme court's got to grant permission or or the court of appeal funding needs to be in place and, and so on but um where you've got this kind of conflict between two court of appeal judgments um then you know it's kind of crying out for further guidance from further up so might not be the end of this issue yeah, I, I can see that from a sort of purely legal standpoint. It's, you know, academic lawyers get upset when there's the Court of Appeal is at odds with itself. But does it sort of matter on the ground, like for, you know, refugees and their families? Does any of this sort of, is it a big deal? Or is it just that the main thing is that they have a bit less protection either way? Well, I think it's difficult to pin down the sort of concrete loss of rights that this would involve if 
um, these family members never had refugee in the first place. Um, and I, I um, argued and lost a case called MS Somalia in the Court of Appeal years ago on a sort of related issue, which was to do with whether family members of refugees could then, who'd been issued with refugee status papers, could then themselves sponsor um, family members and the Court of Appeal ruled that they couldn't. So I, I have to confess, I sort of thought this was a settled issue that basically family members weren't actually refugees, but um, that, that hasn't stopped it from coming up again several years later. Um, so family reunion rights would be one concrete um, loss of rights, but you know the earlier case law said that they didn't have that right anyway. The, there's lots of bits of the Refugee Convention that we don't generally look at as immigration lawyers because we're focused on protection status only. Um, but you know the right to education, to employment, and so on that goes with refugee status. Um, those, in theory, would be would be sort of more vulnerable, I suppose, if these people never had refugee status in the first place. But it seems unlikely that the UK government would be trying to give them lesser rights, lesser status anyway. So I'm not sure it really makes that much difference in the end. Let's talk about the EU settlement scheme. Um, as you mentioned, there has been another statement of changes to the immigration rules, HC170, which came to force on the 31st of October. Uh, making changes to Appendix EU, which uh, includes the EU settlement scheme for existing residents and European temporary leave to remain for new arrivals after Brexit. Uh, Chris Dezira analysed this uh, statement of changes and he's less than impressed by what's happened because it's not a normal statement of changes where the Home Office go through the rules line by line and say what text they're adding and what they're subtracting so you can keep track of the changes. They've just, instead just hurled out an entirely rewritten version of Appendix EU and said, here you go, work out what's different from the last one, if you can. Less than ideal, right? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a nightmare when you're a lawyer because, you know, you kind of, you get yourself up to speed on what the law is on something. And then if they change it, you don't sort of completely start from scratch and read the whole thing again. You just, you know, realistically, you're just not going to do that. You want to know what's changed. And the Home Office is making it extremely difficult to to follow those changes. So um, I, I think they're probably doing this because they think it's better in some way rather than having kind of constantly amended versions, which it's true, you know, isn't ideal. Um, but the very least they could do is is actually make a note and, and, and inform us of, of, of what changes they have actually made. Um, and it's, you know, the, the Appendix EU was supposed to be, and according to the withdrawal agreements, you know, it's legally obliged to be simple and straightforward. And it, it's it's not. It's, it's a really difficult document to get to grips with. And, you know, I'm confused by it. I, th- I think Chris has um, said that he's, he's you know, struggling with the um, sort of clarity of it as well. He's having to use a text analysis tool to work out what's actually changed here. It's um, it, it's really not good practice by the Home Office, and it's an illustration of how you know the Home Office think they can do things in a sort of simple, clear way, and very quickly that comes unstuck, and it's actually far worse than it was before. Yeah, I, I saw Leonie Hurst on Twitter, who's uh, a barrister, say that Appendix EU is now almost completely incomprehensible and an object lesson in how not to draft immigration rules, uh, calling it appalling. So I think there's uh, plenty of support for your view, Con. Yeah, I, I just couldn't agree more. The, the definition stuff is particularly um, uh, irritating because you have to constantly refer from the rules to the interpretations and a lot of substantive law is actually in the interpretation section. And so it's, it's hard enough for lawyers to read. It's almost impenetrable to a member of the public, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, thankfully, uh, Chris has been through this document and has highlighted what is new in the latest uh, Appendix EU. 
There are some sensible tweaks affecting non-European family members, such as being able to count residents from before Brexit towards their settled status. And they can also switch into European temporary leave to remain without having to leave the country. Uh, Also, uh, European temporary remain is now in the actual immigration rules for the first time. It's now part two of Appendix EU and the settlement scheme is part one. The other thing we did pick out was that the latest version makes it easier to deport European citizens after Brexit. Do you know what's going on there, Colin? Yeah, I, I don't think that comes as a huge surprise. Unless I'm getting the wrong end of the stick here, it's just that the rules have been amended for those who arrive after Brexit, assuming that, I, I think you know, the, the, this was done assuming there was going to be um, no deal or in the event of a no deal. So it's new arrivals will be subject to um, the existing UK deportation thresholds. And I think we always knew that that was going to be the case. So it's not changing the rules retrospectively for existing residents um it's for people who arrive um newly to the uk yeah i think you're right that that was always flagged as coming down the line but just to confirm that that is now in the rules for for those new arrivals um after brexit uh, also, just to flag uh, on the settlement scheme that the Home Office has confirmed that it is double counting in the official statistics. Um, the reason this arises is that people who've successfully applied for pre-settled status can now apply again to upgrade to settled status, the full full fat version, if you like. Uh, but those second applications from the same people are being recorded as new applications. <clears throat> so the figures we get are no longer telling us how many individuals have applied the settlement scheme because some people have applied applied twice and that'll keep happening more and more as more people upgrade in the months and years ahead um and uh kuba uh, jablowanski revealed this on free movements and it's been picked up in the financial times um but yeah it's another another home office triumph that one yeah it's it's um they're not doing themselves any favour, the Home Office, with this kind of lack of transparency about what they're doing and how they're doing it and kind of trumpeting these apparently big numbers. Um, and, and to be fair to the Home Office, I mean, they are big numbers anyway. We're yeah. only talking probably about a few thousand at this stage. But that that proportion of people who've made a second application is inevitably going to grow over time. Um, so the Home Office is not doing itself any favours by kind of apparently overcounting its own numbers. Um, and I, I sort of, you know, this could partly be, perhaps be behind um, the explanation for why 120% of Bulgarians have applied under the scheme, but more likely that's, you know, a, a error in sort of calculations or estimates by ONS in, you know, the number of people who are resident from EU countries. So as we're seeing over time, you know, the estimates on how many EU citizens from are actually resident in the UK are, are turning out not necessarily to be very accurate. No, I mean, they, they do come with big margins for error, but even with that, I think uh, this is this exercise is showing that the immigration, ONS immigration statistics just I mean, just aren't great, and, and we've known that for, for a while. Yeah. Um, let's look at some other immigration law and policy developments, starting with a new uh, EU Court of Justice decision. Uh, C9318 Bajratari is the case, and another pretty liberal decision from Luxembourg, this one, Carl. Yes, a very welcome decision. Um, not not a surprise, I don't think, because if we look at the way that the case law was developing on this issue, this was very much clearly the direction that it was going in. And this is it's basically it's about self sufficiency 
and um, I think that the the way that the Home Office would put it is is whether a family can bootstrap themselves uh, sort of into EU law by relying on a child who's an EU national being self-sufficient, um, but then relying on the parents' illegal earnings in order to make that child self-sufficient and therefore bring the family within EU law. And you can sort of see why the Home Office isn't that keen on this kind of situation. Um, but you know, the reality is that um, the way EU law works, it's, it's not really asking about why, it's just asking about what the actual situation is. Um, I think that the, the judgment certainly is welcome. It, it does provide clarity. It also overrules quite a long line of, of domestic cases on this. Um, but it does raise some interesting questions about you know, how um, unlawful can earnings be before they don't qualify. So this, this gentleman had been working. Um, he hadn't had permission to work. And it looks like, you know, the criminal offence of illegal working was introduced, I think, in 2018, um, sort of, yeah, was it early 2018 sometime, like March or something, maybe July? And it sounds like he may well have been working since then. So technically committing a criminal offence by by doing that, um, is that really sort of going to count as, um, as, as lawful or sort of income for, for self-sufficiency purposes? And, and apparently it does. However, you know, I imagine burglary or drug dealing probably doesn't count those are criminal offenses of a very different nature but they are criminal offenses yeah so it's some quite interesting kind of issues arising here deception then there is new home office guidance on when the when officials will refuse a visa or settlement application because of deception or or dishonesty the background i think is all the refusals we've seen for tax discrepancies under paragraph 3225 of the immigration rules and the court of appeal decision in uh, Balajagari in April this year. Uh, The new guidance introduces a procedure sort of along the lines of the one that the court of appeal demanded in Balajagari where officials have to issue a minded to refuse letter if they are going to if they're going to refuse someone for deception or dishonesty. And this is to give people a chance to explain what's been happening, basically, in the case of the tax discrepancies, why they were giving different figures to HMRC than than to the Home Office. Um, But it's kind of limited. It's only where the applicant might not know about the information indicating deception, like if it comes from another government department and they didn't know it was they were going to be confronted with it, I suppose. And also... The other caveat is where the implications for an applicant of a finding of dishonesty are significant. So are those kind of significant limits on on how helpful this guidance is going to be? Yeah, and the guidance, as as you say, the guidance is welcome insofar as it goes and in the cases and where it applies, but it just doesn't apply widely enough. And um, it's, it's always going to be significant, very significant somebody to be called out for lying by the Home Office and refused a visa, especially when you, know, you look at the fees that people pay for these things. Um, and I can, I can foresee as well some big question marks about um, whether somebody did or didn't know about the deception. So, you know, if, if you'd made an application, uh, immigration application 10 years previously and you'd said one thing and then the Home Office is calling you out for deception because you said something else 10 years later, well, you might well say, well, I, I'd completely forgotten about that. That was just an innocent mistake or something. You should have given me a chance to 
um, explain myself in the Home Office saying, well, you must have known what you said 10 years ago, blah, blah, blah. So you, you can see plenty of scope here for the Home Office not to um, sort of deploy this new minded to refuse approach in, in an unfortunately wide pool of cases. Um, I suppose they're keen to avoid the additional kind of admin that's involved with this. Um, but you'd have hoped that they'd be, you know, that they'd think it was more important that people get a fair, uh, fair decision making process. But that's, that's not top of their not top of their priority list, it seems. No, I, you, I could hear you sort of laugh at yourself as you suggested that the Home Office might, uh, you know, care about you know, procedural justice. Yeah, it's all it's all about kind of, you know, making things fast rather than um, making them fair. And, you know, actually truly efficient decision making would include a, a proper sort of fair opportunity to comment on these things rather than having to reapply and um, perhaps appeal or JR and so on. Although I suppose they're counting on most people just not bothering. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, let's talk about the Article 3 medical case you mentioned. Um, so these kind of cases are where seriously ill migrants might be able to resist removal from UK relying on the European Convention of on Human Rights and Article 3 thereof. Um, the European Court of Human Rights has made a judgment suggesting that the threshold for people to pass for resisting removal on Article 3 medical grounds uh, should be lower than the previous cases had suggested. The case is Savran and Denmark, application number five seven four six seven slash fifteen. But it was a it was a split decision. Quite a, a few judges dissented. I think it was maybe four to three. And and Shai Patel's write up of the case suggested the majority judgment maybe wasn't particularly strong or persuasive. So maybe we need to be cautious about whether this will stick. Yeah, and Chai, I think, was um, quite sceptical about sort of the the approach of the majority in this case. Um, and in, in some way, it's very welcome for this particular applicant. But in terms of sort of trying to follow it in further case or understand kind of the evolution of case law, it's not really a very robust case um, because the court doesn't really explain what its reasoning. The facts don't look like on the face of it. They approach even the amended Papishvili sort of threshold. So um, it, it, it's an interesting development, and we thought it was worth um, flagging. Because of course, these Article Three medical treatment cases are you know, very difficult, very compelling cases. So you know, it is it is it is important for to flag these things up, but um, it's not necessarily a very good foundation for for building arguments on. We we have to say one deportation case to mention then. OH Algeria and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2019 EWCA Civ 1763. This was about someone being deported for quite an old criminal conviction. It was, in fact, a 2004 sentence for grievous bodily harm. He successfully appealed against deportation at the time, or a year or two after. <clears throat> but the deportation rules were tightened some years later. Uh, maybe it was maybe the 2012 changes, um, but but long after he'd appealed uh, against deportation for this conviction, and the issue in the new case was basically can the Home Office come along and try again, uh, applying these new tougher rules to this old conviction, and the decision from the Court of Appeal basically said yes, that's fine. Um, fire away, and I think that's very much in line with the authorities, really. Yeah, it, it's. I, I think it's shocking in in some ways, but it's also not surprising because we've seen similar 
sort of uh, approach from the Court of Appeal in previous cases. But I still, I just, I really am shocked by these cases because if, if you've been up for deportation previously and you've won your appeal, you know, the principle of legal finality on the face of it would suggest that, you know, it's got to be something genuinely new that the Home Office rely on. Um, and we've seen with this case and, and perhaps even more starkly in some of the other cases that have gone before, that um, the Court of Appeal just isn't um, following that approach at all. Um, so it, it's, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's really, really quite unfortunate. Um, it's another example as well of, you know, the first tier who heard the case um, decided that basically the, the high thresholds um, were met in this case. There were very compelling circumstances, um, which is a, a decision on the facts. And yet this has been appealed up to the upper tribunal and the court of appeal um, on slightly sort of dubious legal grounds. You know, this doesn't seem to be a matter of law as such. It's, it's really about the application of the facts to the law. Um, but that's a pattern that unfortunately we've, we've very much seen in deportation cases where the Home Office just almost automatically apply for permission to appeal. And unfortunately, the courts seem to be granting them permission, even in these cases, which are, in, in truth, challenges to decisions on the facts. Yeah, it's a, it's a consistent thing we've seen for sure. Finally, then, to wrap up this podcast, a slightly sad case in the points-based system called our Imam and Secretary of State 2019 EWCA Civ 1760. Um, the, Mr. Imam was a chef, and chefs usually get special treatment as a shortage occupation in the points-based system. Um, but his employer had a takeaway service, as well as being a sit-down restaurant, and under the rules in force at the time, Restaurants that offer takeaway don't benefit from this exemption for their chefs, even if they're really fancy and just happen to do delivery. Um, the this takeaway rule has since been abolished recently enough, but it was um, too late for Mr. Imam in, in his litigation. Um, the court said that the Home Office is entitled to change its policy when circumstances change and there's no sort of legal issue. So he, it was just too late for him, really. Yeah, it, it, it does seem very unlucky. And, you know, the, the case um, followed a couple of other previous cases. So the sort of outcome wasn't surprising on, on most of it. But what, what the court perhaps could have been a bit more sympathetic on is the fact that the, even the Home Office recognised that the rule was basically wrong now and had made this announcement that they were they were going to change it. The announcement was based on the Migration Advisory Committee report, which predated the litigation um, so you'd have thought the court might have found some leeway, possibly just being a bit over optimistic on my part here, to say that you know that the if you know that this change is coming, if uh, you know the the rule might have been rational at the time that it was introduced, but um, it had become redundant since then. And as I don't know, maybe this is just um, yeah, just being feeling very sympathetic for for an individual who's um, who's been affected here. But I, I, I did enjoy as ever um, Nick Nason's write up, who um, points out that you know this this change was being um, sort of tailed by the Home Office as being a new Vindaloo visa. Um, designed to save the nation's curry houses. And he, and he says it's like kicking someone half to death and then boasting about how you drove them to hospital because, you know, it's a, it's a bit late yeah. and it's a bit rich to try and make capital out of this when it's, you know, your own rules that have been causing this problem in the, in the, in the first place. Yeah, exactly. You, you bring in the hilariously uh, 
tight system and mess up a given industry and then come along saying how you're saving that industry by (laughs) reversing the rules yes home office all over it right well i think that wraps up for this week so we hope that has been useful and we'll be back next month goodbye